If you look at Matthew 11 and verse 11, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist is one of the most significant persons in human history, one of the most impressive men in the Bible. And yet in Matthew 11, he seems to doubt Jesus. The beginning of the chapter, you see, John, verse 2, heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ and he sent a word by his disciples and said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? What then are we to make of this great prophet of whom no one is greater and yet who doubts Jesus? What is your verdict on John? See, verse 11 indicates Jesus' verdict. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. That's a big call, isn't it? No one greater than John the Baptist. I mean, that comes from Jesus himself. That's not my opinion or your opinion, but God's own son could say of John that he was the greatest. I mean, that's... Well, you wouldn't mind having that rap on your CV, would you? The greatest is Philip Jensen. Uh, Muhammad Ali, he used to say, I am the greatest, but of course that was self-promotion, backed up by a quick shuffle and a very powerful punch, but it was self-promotion. This is Jesus' promotion. There has been no one greater. There is no one greater than John the Baptist. John is the greatest. But what has been the verdict of history? The last few weeks uh, I've had holidays and I've been doing some reading in history and I read a new book by Paul Barnett that's come out called Gospel Truth, Answering New Atheist Attacks on the Gospel. Uh, it's a great read, I'd warmly commend it to you and uh, it's, a, it's a kind of book that you can give to Christian and non-Christian friends alike who are troubled by the atheist attack of recent times or who are uncertain about the basis of the truth of the gospel. It's one of those books that actually lays the foundations for you, lays it out beautifully, it's easy to read, Paul's a great historian and a great writer of books like this and I'd commend it to you indeed. For Christianity is an historical religion, and not meaning that it's just old and in history, but meaning that it is based in history. Certain things happened, they were recorded, and if they didn't happen then the whole of Christianity is wrong and needs to be rejected. See, you can have Confucianism without Confucius and you can have Buddhism without Buddha, but you can't have Christianity without Christ because Christianity is not a set of principles or morality or ethics. It's, it's not really a religion or a set of experiences or some kind of spirituality. It's about a person and a relationship with that person. It's about our relationship with a personal God, a relationship with God himself through his son, Jesus. And that personal God, you see, became man and lived amongst us at a particular time and in a particular place. For the person who says to me, show me God and I will believe in him, the answer is you've come to the wrong continent at the wrong date. If you were in the Middle East in the first century, I could have shown you God. He was here. You just haven't turned up at the right place at the right time. And we have 
historical evidences of his existence. Uh, part of the historical evidence and the events was the life and work of John the Baptist. For Jesus just doesn't pop out of no environment, no context, no. He arrives in a very long historical context in a particular moment in time that God has prepared for him. And a key part of that arrival was John the Baptist, the prophet who called the nation to repentance and to huge, huge crowds went out to hear him and to be baptised by him in the Jordan, down in the Judean wilderness. He was the man who challenged the degenerate king, King Herod of the day, and was beheaded for telling the truth about him. He was a man who pointed his disciples away from himself and towards Jesus. Part of the historical evidences for the New Testament is the evidences about John the Baptist, not only in the New Testament, but also outside the New Testament. For Josephus, the Jewish historian of the late first century, he wrote the history of the Jews, in part to ingratiate himself with the Romans and to defend his, his betrayal of the Jews. Uh, he wrote the history of the Jews and he records in it John's life and death. He records it in the following passage, slightly long passage I'm going to read for you now, but just to help you see the evidence we have outside the New Testament. To some of the Jews, the destruction of Herod's army seemed to be divine vengeance and certainly a just vengeance for his treatment of John, surnamed the Baptist. For Herod had put him to death, though he was a good man and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice towards their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing join in baptism. In his view, this was a necessary preliminary if baptism was to be acceptable to God. They must not employ it to gain pardon for whatever sins they commit, but as a consecration of the body, implying that the soul was already thoroughly cleansed by right behaviour. When others too joined the crowds about him, because they were aroused by the highest degree by his sermons, Herod became alarmed. Eloquence that had so great an effect on mankind might lead some to form a sedition, to some form of sedition, for it looked as if they would be guided by John in everything that they did. Herod decided, therefore, it would be much better to strike first and be rid of him before his work led to an uprising than to wait for an upheaval and get involved in a difficult situation and see his mistake. Though John, because of Herod's suspicions, was brought in chains to Machaerus, the stronghold that we had previously mentioned, and there put to death, yet the verdict of the Jews was the destruction visited upon Herod's army was a vindication of John since God saw fit to inflict such a blow on Herod. John was a public figure. You write the history of the Jews in the first century, you recount the public figures. Here is a public figure. He's recounted just like you would expect him to be recounted as part of the history of Israel in the first century. And you can see from this quote that we're not dealing then with fairy stories or with legends, but real events, real people in a real place in a real time. Furthermore, many of the things in the New Testament records about John, what he did, uh, what he happened, what happened to him, are confirmed in these public records of the time. 
Like John, Jesus didn't live and die in obscurity, but publicly. It was a backwater of the empire, Judea, but it was a known part of the empire and is recorded for us. And Jesus' actions were sufficiently well known to be referred to by Josephus, for example. He has a paragraph on Jesus as well, which I'll give you another time. Notice, though, the verdict of history upon John. He was a righteous prophet calling the nation to repentance and paying the extreme price for his faithfulness, which is just the picture you get of him in the New Testament. But what is the New Testament verdict on John the Baptist? How is he described? What is he recorded as doing? And how does the Gospel writer understand him? Well, John the Baptist came into the wilderness of Judea as the last Old Testament prophet. I know he's in the New Testament, but he is the last of the Old Testament prophets, really. Uh, Turn with me back to chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, just back a few pages, page 975 on our Cathedral Bibles. Chapter 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan were going out to him and they were baptised by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John came looking for the arrival of God's kingdom and looking for the arrival of God's king looking at somebody who was going to be much greater than himself, as he described it, somebody whose sandal he was unworthy to carry, somebody who would baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire, somebody who would bring judgement and the salvation of God. But it wasn't until after John was imprisoned that Jesus commenced his work, announcing exactly the same message. Just come across the page to chapter 4, verse 12. Over the page, 4, verse 12. Now, when he, that is Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Down to verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll notice the message there in chapter 4 verse 17, exactly the same as the one back in chapter 3 verse 2. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John's message was Jesus' message. The kingdom's about to arrive, get ready. And the way you get ready is by repentance. And so in 4 verse 23, we read of Jesus, went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and afflictions amongst the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains and those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics and He healed them and great crowds followed him. Here was Jesus bringing in the kingdom of heaven. Slightly different to John, for he was bringing healing. He was teaching, he was travelling around. He didn't actually baptise himself, though his disciples baptised, but he was calling upon the nation to repent, but he was also bringing release, bringing salvation, bringing healing. 
Now, this work of Jesus continued until chapter 9, where we just look up there at the end of chapter 9 and at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. As Jesus could see the kingdom was about to come, the judgment on Israel was about to arrive. He could see that was happening, but there wasn't time to reach Israel before the harvest came. What he needed was more workers to work with him. And so he called upon them to pray for the Father for more laborers. And then in chapter 10, you see, he sends out the 12 apostles. And he called to him the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction and the name of the twelve apostles are these the word apostle means the ones who are sent out so he gets twelve disciples a disciple is a student uh, you know what discipline do you study I study maths a disciple discipline it's the best of the word for student he gets twelve of his students and sends them out as apostles but to do the very thing that he has been doing, to go proclaiming the kingdom of God. Now, he warns them in the rest of chapter 10, catching up to where we were a few weeks ago in Matthew's Gospel, getting ourselves in line for chapter 11 here, he warns them of what is going to happen to them. But look down to verse 5 of chapter 10. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand same message as John same message as Jesus God's rule on earth is about to break in upon us having sent them out Jesus himself also went out we hit chapter 11 now when Jesus had finished verse 1 instructing his 12 disciples he went out from there to teach and to preach in their cities. The twelve were going out, spreading his message much faster than could have been by one man, but he was continuing as well, so there were 13 really going around, Jesus and his twelve. But as Jesus predicted, and as he had warned his apostles, as the news of Jesus spread, so did the opposition and misunderstanding of Jesus. People heard the announcement but they misunderstood completely the message because they misunderstood the messenger. Even John misunderstands Jesus, misunderstands what Jesus was saying and doing. And so we read here in chapter 11 verses 2 and 3, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent the word by his disciples and said, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? Notice how Matthew describes what is happening. John heard about the deeds of the Christ. He doesn't say heards about the deeds of Jesus, but the deeds of the Christ, the Messiah, the King. A word that actually Matthew hasn't used since right back in chapter 2 when King Herod and the wise men came to him and he asked about the Christ and how the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem. But now the work of the apostles is the work of the Christ. It's the work of the kingdom. It's the work of the king. 
And Matthew wants the readers to know the mission of the Twelve were the deeds of the Christ. But John is unsure if it is the Christ. Are you the one? Or are you just a forerunner like I am? Is there somebody else to come? Is, have I got the wrong person? It shows that what John expected is different to what Jesus delivered. That was his problem. I have this expectation and what I get is this. Well, rather than changing my expectation, I'm saying I'll change you. I'll find somebody who fits my expectation. It's a very common problem, isn't it? So many people, the atheists of which Paul Barnett writes against us, say, oh, well, if God is God, then he must be X, Y, Z. Well, he's not X, he's not Y, he's not Z, therefore he doesn't exist. But the God that doesn't exist is the God they've made up, not the God who is there. The God who is there is the Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever people talk about God, put in the word Jesus. God doesn't exist. Well, Jesus doesn't exist. Well, Jesus actually did exist, didn't he? So, the existence of God is very simple. Look at Jesus. He's God. Did he exist? Yes, he did exist. What do you mean by exist? Well, you mean in this world. Well, that's when God came into this world in the person of Jesus, yes. If you mean outside of this world, well, that's a different question, isn't it? But you see, people have their expectations, they have their question, and then you've got to fulfil their expectation, their question. John had his expectation. Jesus didn't seem to fulfil it. How can this be? This is the greatest of all men. This is the great prophet. Jesus' answer in verse 5 reminds John of the Old Testament, reminds John to fix his expectation, to check his glasses, so to speak. For Jesus reminds him by alluding back to Isaiah 35. Let me read you Isaiah 35. It's up on the screen. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What do you expect when the king comes? What do you expect when God arrives? What do you expect when the kingdom of God arrives? Why? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. Well, John, look what's happening. Look at what's taking place. Change your expectation and see. To see Jesus for who he truly is, you must read your Old Testament. You must see him fulfilling what God had promised in the Old Testament, what God promised when the coming of the kingdom. You see, when I take my glasses off, I see you as wonderfully, magnificently handsome, glorious, wonderful people, every one of them. But when I put my glasses on, I see you as you really are. The glasses actually bring you into focus. Well, you look at Jesus without the Old Testament, well, what's he on about? What's he doing? Why is he doing what's he doing? But you put your Old Testament glasses on and you look through your Old Testament at Jesus and you say, hey, he's doing what God said was going to happen. He's doing the Isaiah 35 thing. As one of the passages, that's the one that Jesus referred to John to. Just remind John of what is happening. Look, 
the kingdom is coming in the terms of the Old Testament prophesied and promised. Rejoice and be glad. Salvation and righteousness have arrived as you prophesied and as you promised John. It's not just John who misunderstood Jesus. The crowds also misunderstand what is happening. They don't understand John or Jesus. And so Jesus explains John to them in verses 7 through to 15. See, John was a prophet. He didn't come as a king in soft raiment and comfortable palace. John was a prophet. But notice verse 9. He was more than a prophet. John was the final great prophet before the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, where, John quotes, where Jesus quotes Malachi, declaring that John was the messenger promised in Malachi chapter 3, the messenger who would come before the preparing, preparing the way of the Lord in judgment. Indeed, if you'll accept it, he says in verse 14, John is the Elijah promised in Malachi 4. See, if you're going to understand Jesus, read your Old Testament. If you're going to understand John, read your Old Testament. It's, it's the Old Testament that will put your eyes in focus to see and understand what you're looking at. In Malachi 4 we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. It's the last two verses of the Old Testament. Therefore, John has a unique role in history, the last great prophet before the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And here then is the difference between John and Jesus. John was before the coming of the kingdom. Jesus brought the kingdom. And that difference is massive. That's why Jesus makes not only one, but two remarkable statements in verse 11. Look again at verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. See, the first statement, remarkable statement, is the importance and, great, importance and greatness of John. Even compared to Moses, compared to David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, nobody is greater than John. Big call. But notice the second statement. Great as John was, the least in the kingdom is greater still than John. For John was still living before the kingdom, outside the kingdom, while Jesus was bringing the kingdom. So extraordinary, so unique, so important was the new age that John foretold and Jesus brought that the least citizen of the kingdom will be greater in the things of God than the greatest of all the prophets. Friends, this is an extraordinary statement. You know, you kind of laughed within yourself, not out loud, it would have been rude, when I said, you know, Philip Jensen's the greatest. <laughs> you think, yeah, sure. Put that in the category of Muhammad Ali and other silly self-promoters, right? But I said, well, wouldn't it be a great rap to have Jesus saying, you're the greatest? And the answer is, if you're in the kingdom of heaven, you are. 
you are greater than the greatest. John is the greatest man born of a woman in this world. But the one in the kingdom of heaven is greater still. Isn't that extraordinary? It's an incredible statement that Jesus is making. He's claiming that something greater than all history is taking place. Greater than the Exodus, greater than the crossing of the Red Sea, greater than Moses, greater than the Ten Commandments, uh, greater than the Temple, greater than Jerusalem, greater than King David, greater than anything that's happened up until this moment is now happening with Jesus. The Kingdom of Heaven, you see, marks out the greatest shift in history. I mentioned to you before that when one of my children went to high school, they got a history book of the ancient world and I checked it out to see what it said about the Jews. Nothing, they didn't exist. I checked out what it said about Christianity. Only one reference to Jesus in the book. What was that? It was in about page four or five. It says, historians in the old world used to think the most important thing that happened was Jesus and that's why we date everything as being before Christ or in AD, BC and AD, it's all divided. It's the only reference to Jesus. What previous generations thought was the most important thing that had ever happened, the modern kind of textbook of secular historians of Australia today see it just as a footnote necessary to explain where we get BC and AD from. And of course, many want to do away with AD, they just want to have BCE and CE, that is common era and before common era, although that is completely ridiculous because there never has been a common era. Uh, the Jews date from Moses, the Mohammedans vote from Mohammed. Uh, there is, never has been a common era, but they want to call it a common era so as to de-Christianise history. That's the aim. But what if Jesus is saying is, no, BC, AD is right. Notice it's not AC, it's not after Christ. You can never be after Christ because Christ brings the kingdom that lives forever. That's why it's in the year of the Lord, Anno Domini. We are now in the year of the Lord. Everything before that was before Christ, but now everything is in the year of the Lord. The number, 2012, is irrelevant. The AD is the important thing to put on every government form whenever you get an opportunity. Whenever they ask you the date, the date of your birth, put AD and then 1927 or whatever it was that you were born in. For this is the important thing that is now happening. Those before the kingdom of God, those who live in the kingdom, that's the difference. Those who are living in the world of judgment as opposed to those who are living in the world of salvation. Those who are born and are living in this world and those who are born again and living in the age to come. But yet Jesus has also had to explain the coming of the kingdom for since John's time the kingdom didn't come in the way they expected conquering the Romans or bringing peace and ease. But violence and conflict had been the order of the day. The violence and conflict that will lead ultimately to John's execution and to Christ's crucifixion. For who expected the king to come by crucifixion? Guarantee Prince Charles doesn't think he's going to be crucified when he comes finally to become King of England and Australia, if he still is by then. But no one thinks, and Charles the least thinks, that when they take him into Westminster Abbey, they're going to crucify him. The media, they might, but 
that people won't. They'll put a crown on his head, they'll anoint him, they'll put a robe over him, they'll do all kinds of things. But who thinks that the way the king comes is by crucifixion? Jesus alone thought that. If you can believe it, unlike John who was having difficulty believing it, if you can believe it, John was the Elijah of Malachi 4, says Jesus, the great last prophet before the coming of the judgment of God and the kingdom of God, because he's the one coming last before the death and resurrection of Jesus. And by misunderstanding John, the crowds were also misunderstanding Jesus. For John was the prophet that pointed to Jesus. John was the last prophet who pointed to the Christ. If John is the messenger of Malachi 3, if John is the Elijah of Malachi 4, then Jesus is the one who is bringing the judgment of the world and the salvation of the world The salvation of the world as described in Isaiah 35 when all the captives of sin and death are going to be released. But Jesus saw his generation as too fickle to hear the message of John or to understand and recognise the coming of the Christ. So we see there in verses 18 and 19, John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man comes eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You can't win with people. They don't know their scriptures and so they don't recognise what they're seeing. They don't recognise the last great prophet who tells the coming of the kingdom. All they see is a judgmental wowser. Consequently, When the Christ comes, they don't recognise the Saviour of the world and the Son of God and the King when he comes. All they see is a kind of laxist friend of sinners who hangs around with low life. There's more to believing than simply seeing. Uh, The picture is never worth a thousand words. That's why in all art galleries around the world, they always have little plaques beside every picture explaining them. What's the plaque there for if the picture is self-explanatory? If the picture's worth a thousand words, you don't need a little plaque, but every art gallery I've ever been is. Little plaques everywhere. And when the plaque falls down and I have to look at the picture without a plaque, I never know what I'm looking at. (laughs) The plaque is critical to an understanding of what you're looking at. Seeing is not believing, is not understanding, is not perceiving. You need explanation. You need to know what you're looking at. But yet there is another more profound problem with understanding. That is, you have to want the message. In any communication, the talking, the the speaking, the announcing is only part of the process. The listening is also critically important. Right now, in all kinds of rooms all around Sydney, there are men and women talking into microphones, sending out messages all over our city. And unless you've got an earpiece in at the moment, you can't hear one of them, can you? The message is going out, but the receivers are not receiving. And even when you are listening to somebody, you actually have to listen, don't you? See, preaching and speaking simple. Listening is difficult. What you are doing in this exercise here now is more difficult than what I'm doing. Because I know what I do think and I'm saying what I do think. 
You have to work at understanding what I think. And if you don't want to know what I think, you can sit there in a complete fog, can't you? In fact, there are people like that at the moment who don't know I'm talking about them because they've been off with the fairies for the last 15 minutes. (laughs) Those who smile at that point, I know you're still here and you're still connecting. But the key is between each of you is who's listening? Who wants to know what the speaker is saying? And so Jesus warned his contemporaries, verse 15, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You've got the ears, but having the ears is only half the... You've got to have the mind that wants to understand. I'm afraid when you read many of the modern atheistic writers, you know, the Dawkins of this world, they've never read to understand, which is quite clear when you see what they say about the Lord Jesus, because they misrepresent him so seriously just like the people in Jesus' own day misrepresent. If you don't want to know what Jesus says, you won't. That's easy. So the warning is still the same in every day. But this message is so important because it's the message between those who are born and those who are born again. Those who live under judgment in this world and those who live under salvation in the world to come. And the greatest in this world is less than the least in the world to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending him into this world to save us. We thank you for the message of salvation he brings. Thank you for preparing the way with your servant John. We do pray for each one of us here this day, Father, we might all know your son as king, that we may be in your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Andrew.